0: Please open your Bibles to Second Chronicles chapter 25. Our study tonight will be verses 1 to 13, 2 Chronicles 25, beginning at verse 1 and we'll continue to verse 13. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant and life-giving word. Amaziah was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehoadan of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, yet not with a whole heart. And as soon as the royal power was his, he killed his servants who had struck down the king his father. But he did not put their children to death according to what is written in the law in the book of Moses, where the Lord commanded Fathers shall not die because of their children, nor children die because of their fathers, but each one shall die for his own sin. Then Amaziah assembled the men of Judah and set them by fathers' houses under commanders of thousands and of hundreds for all Judah and Benjamin. He mustered those twenty years old and upward and found that they were three hundred thousand choice men, fit for war, able to handle spear and shield. He hired also 100,000 mighty men of valor from Israel for 100 talents of silver. But a man of God came to him and said, O king, do not let the army of Israel go with you, for the Lord is not with Israel, with all these Ephraimites. But go, act, be strong for the battle. Why did you suppose that God will cast you down before the enemy? For God has power to help or to cast down. And Amaziah said to the man of God, but what shall we do about the hundred talents that I have given to the army of Israel? The man of God answered, the Lord is able to give you much more than this. Then Amaziah discharged the army that had come to him from Ephraim to go home again. And they became very angry with Judah and returned home in fierce anger. But Amaziah took courage and led his people out and went to the Valley of Salt and struck down 10,000 men of Seir. The men of Judah captured another 10,000 alive and took them to the top of a rock and threw them down from the top of the rock, and they were all dashed to pieces. But the men of the army whom Amaziah sent back, not letting them go with him to battle, raided the cities of Judah from Samaria to Beth-horon and struck down 3,000 people in them and took much spoil. The grass withers, the flowers fall, and the word of our God abides forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this record of the kings of Judah and of their faith and unbelief that we might be made wise in your ways, that we might understand how we can serve you and to enter into your blessing and to do your will. Bless us as we study your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Between David and Zechariah, there were 21 kings who ruled over the house of Judah, not counting, of course, wicked Queen Athaliah. Among these rulers were some of the greatest spiritual giants of all times, so the names of David and Solomon, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, and Josiah. They shine in history as examples of the highest valor, wisdom, and godliness. One of my aims, one of the joys of studying Second Chronicles is you get to know some of these people better, and many of them are great. But the list also contains some of history's worst bad actors. Rehoboam's foolish pride caused the kingdom of Israel to split. Ahaz needlessly introduced Assyrian idols into the temple. Manasseh the worst led Judah into the gross abomination of child sacrifice, and the godless sons of Josiah oversaw the kingdom's final destruction under God's wrath. Now first and second chronicles tells the stories of these kings to an audience of Jewish believers who were returning to Jerusalem After their Babylonian captivity, we're reading of events in the 8th century BC, actually late 9th century BC, but it's being written, we should not forget, around the year 475 to people coming back from Jerusalem from the exile and the unknown author intended more than merely to recite the facts of history. History is boring when it's just facts and dates and numbers but when it's action and there's ideas and there are themes it comes alive and so is chronicles he wants his people to learn the lessons from the centuries that had gone before them and there are definite themes that can be traced through first and second chronicles Uh, high among them is the necessity of seeking the lord with all your heart he uses that language over and over a god's faithfulness to deliver his trusting people out of trouble the Second Chronicles tells the story of those kings who reigned after David, not primarily to show what sins they committed that caused the kingdom to fall, that will come out, but that was really the job of First and Second Kings. His purpose rather is to give a hope of grace to those who are starting over with their lives in the land of promise. Now interspersed between the famous names and the list of Judah's kings, both the noble and the ignoble are the other kings. And these were the sons of the house of David who may be regarded as mediocre in their qualities and often who were not strong in faith or obnoxiously evil. And among them is Amaziah, the son of King Joash. Joash was the boy king who was rescued by the high priest Jehoiada, only to grow up and unrighteously slay the son of that same Jehoiada. And in keeping with the trajectory of his father, we are told in verse two that Amaziah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, yet not with a whole heart. That's going to be the theme for his life. Now, the introductory paragraph for Amaziah's reign tells us that he was the son of a Jewish woman named Jehoadan, at least she's not a daughter of Bathsheba, And also that he was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. Verse 1, it seems very straightforward, except it is not. It ends up being complicated by his defeat in battle against the king of Israel, that will come in the second half of the chapter, and his subsequent imprisonment in the northern kingdom, verse 23. And so as a result, the majority of his reign, perhaps almost all of it in fact, involved a co-regency with his son Uzziah a much more famous king and he actually ruled the nation well the chronicler repeats the record of 2 Kings 14:3 in saying that Amaziah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord but there's a caveat yet not with a whole heart and some commentators have taken the situation to describe out that he started out well he was godly in the beginning but then later he fell into disobedience. The reality, however, is that Amaziah was half-hearted in his faith from the very beginning. This assessment that he lacked a whole heart means that his faith was insecure. It could be translated, lacks a perfect heart. It's an ins- insincere, that's what I'm looking for. It's an insincere heart toward the Lord. That's what's really being said here. And his good deeds, as they were performed, were done for motives other than then a true devotion to the Lord. Matthew Henry concludes, I think rightly, that Amaziah was not a man of serious piety or devotion to the Lord. Now, this does not deny that he did some good things. Doing what was right, that language in Chronicles, probably means that he upheld the temple worship and the rituals there, and he played his proper role in the nation's religious activities. But lacking a whole heart The idea that he did, it's not that he did some good and did some bad, but rather that even the good that Amaziah did had motives other than true and saving faith. throughout his narrative, the chronicler is looking for true heart devotion, those who trust in the Lord with all their heart, sincere faith. And these qualities seem never to have existed within Amaziah. Now for a variety of reasons bad men will sometimes do good things and yet these works should not be thought acceptable to God. The Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 16 observes that unregenerate men and women may do things which God commands and there may be good results of it yet I quote because they proceed not from a heart purified by faith nor are done in a right manner according to the word nor to a right end the glory of god they are nonetheless sinful and cannot please god nor make a man fit to receive grace from the lord westminster confession sixteen seven, a very helpful statement remember it was to an outwardly righteous pharisee a jew who was greatly admired by his deeds to whom jesus spoke the words you must be born again You must be born again. And Amaziah's lack of a whole or a sincere heart indicates that his good deeds gained him no favor with the Lord. And we will find that the record of his life bears that assessment out. Well, he came to the throne of Judah after the king's servants had assassinated his father, King Joash. And therefore, verse 3, as soon as the royal power was firmly his, in other words, as soon as he was publicly hailed and and enthroned and given the power he killed his servants who had struck down the king his father now we can understand why a king would not want courtiers whose prior claim to fame was king slaying that that makes perfect sense and it might be argued that well no actually they, they were doing god's will remember When Joash unrighteously slew Zechariah the priest, the son of Jehoiada, that priest called for God to avenge him. They were just doing God's vengeance. But it doesn't change the fact that they were sinning by doing so. Romans 12, 19 says, "'Vengeance is mine, I will repay,' says the Lord." And that means we are to leave God's vengeance to him. There is never a justification for sin. And so the punishment they received from Amaziah fit the crime committed by the servants of his father for their royal act of murder. And yet the new king also showed mercy and restraint. Verse 4, he did not put their children to death. Now that was the royal custom of the time. We see that happen in deplorable ways in prior kings. And so here's one good deed that Amaziah did. And not only that, but he seems to have done it as guided by God's word. He acted according to what is written in the law in the book of Moses where the Lord commanded fathers shall not die because of their children nor children die because of their fathers each shall die for his own sin. Now by noting this command from God's word we always need to remember that the chronicler has an agenda the Holy Spirit through the chronicler has an agenda for what he highlights. This was an important message for the generation to whom this book first was written those people coming back they were the offspring of a failed wicked forefathers who had been judged by the Lord and they're being reminded that 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 God's curse would not be inflicted on them by the sins of their forefathers but the Lord would treat them according to their own faith and works and so the challenges the later post-exilic community would face did not result as seems to have been thought by many it did not result from the bad record of their forefathers, but it came out of their own walk with the Lord. Andrew Stewart notes that this truth that each of us stands on our own before the Lord is both a principle of fairness and mercy, and it forces us to look to our own sin rather than the failings of others to explain the trials that we face. Well, Amaziah was firmly established now on the throne after the conspirators against his father had been dealt with. And so then he set out to deal with unfinished business he had inherited, which included a recent revolt by the Edomites in the latter years of his father's reign. And and to that end, he took stock of his fighting strength. Verse five, then Amaziah assembled the men of Judah and set them by their father's houses under commanders of thousands and of hundreds for all Judah and Benjamin. He mustered those 20 years old and upward and found there were 300,000 choice men fit for war, able to handle spear and shield. Now, that's actually a disappointing muster in the context of 2 Chronicles, at least in terms of raw numbers. It wasn't that much long earlier that King Jehoshaphat had mustered over a million battle-ready soldiers. 2 Chronicles 17, 14 to 18 shows that. And Matthew Henry notes that sin weakens the people. It diminishes them. It dispirits them. It lessens their numbers. But there is encouragement, for we read that though it's a smaller force, it consisted of men fit for war who could handle their weapons. Now, another sign that Amaziah's faith was half-hearted or insincere is how he solved this problem. He had a problem with a, a revolt on his hands. And notice there's no mention here of any appeal to the Lord in prayer. His first impulse is to reckon on his own strength rather than on the Lord. Now, this God-forgetting self-reliance is confirmed in the solution he took to the problem of his numbers deficit. In verse 6, he doesn't have enough soldiers, he thinks, so what does he do? He hired also a hundred thousand mighty men of valor from Israel for a hundred talents of silver. Now, later on in Chroniclers, we're going we're to spend a few, quite a few weeks with a, a much godlier, a much greater king, namely Hezekiah, who was faced with a far more dire threat than Amaziah has, and he took his threat immediately to the Lord. One of the highlights of Chronicles and Kings, it's also in Jeremiah 38 or Isaiah 38, is when Hezekiah, Hezekiah goes before the Lord and he he spreads the threatening letter from the Assyrian king and he calls upon the Lord to uphold his honor, to remember his promises to his people, and deliver them from peril. Now that's what a wholehearted faith looks like in the book of Chronicles. But such a thought never seems to have occurred to half-hearted Amaziah. I wonder, does such a thought ever occur to us? Do we respond to our problems and challenges by, by shocking news of this kind or that, by immediate recourse to our own resources, or do we take them to the Lord in prayer? Foolish people will speak of prayer As our last resource, I tried everything else, so my last resource was to try prayer. No, no, no. The wholehearted believer sees prayer as our first resource and our most effective recourse in dealing with trouble. We pray first how greatly the words of James chapter 4 verse 2 are written over so many of our failures and frustrations. He said, you do not have because you do not ask. Now the Lord was faithful to Amaziah, however, by sending an unnamed prophet to confront the king's error, verse seven. but a man of God came to him and said, "O King, do not let the army of Israel go with you, for the Lord is not with Israel with all these Ephraimites." No, He, for, he didn't think about the Lord. He's forgetful of God. And so he'd reckoned the Israelite mercenaries, and they're mighty men. These are top-grade mercenaries, they're expensive by the numbers they brought and the fighting power he thought they would give. It never occurred to him to wonder, how do these people stand with the Lord? And by this time, the answer is badly, badly. The Israel, the northern kingdom, is immersed in idolatry. And so Amaziah was actually merely invoking the Lord's wrath by having these idol worshipers marching with his army. I think a good analogy today would involve a Bible-teaching church partnering in a local evangelistic rally with other churches that denied the gospel and taught the Bible falsely. What possibly is being gained other than spiritual confusion or an actual subtraction of our gospel integrity because of the addition of mere dollars and numbers? We are not to reckon as if there was no God. Now, the most important principle that Amaziah had forgotten is one of the themes that is most important to the book of 2 Chronicles. It's the truth that the decisive factor in every situation is God's help or God's opposition. It's not really a factor in the equation, although Amaziah did not even treat it that way. It is the factor in every equation. And so this prophet comes to him And he he confronts him with this, but go, act, be strong for battle. Why should you suppose that God will cast you down before the enemy? For God has power to help or to cast down, verse 8. You see, why should Amaziah be worried if he was trusting the Lord? Did he not realize that God has power to help in the case of those who trust him? Just as, conversely, God can cast down any who offend him through unbelief. Now verse 8 involves a minor translation difficulty so that one version the New King James puts it this way and this is very plausible but if you go be gone be strong in battle even so God will make you fall before your enemy for God has power to help and to overthrow. Now in that case he's goading him he's urging him okay go ahead Mr. Self-Reliance. Take your Israelite mercenaries, those idol worshipers, with you. Do you ever be, oh, you'll be strong. Fight hard. And guess what's going to happen? God is going to be against you. That, that is one translation that, he's, that he could be saying. The English Standard Version instead takes him to be encouraging Amaziah that he really should trust the Lord, although he did, in fact, warn if a failure if he did not. But here's the message. God has power to help or to cast down however we decide on the translation of the verse the message is the same we should trust god in our trials and dangers and we should fear god lest we should recklessly offend him and suffer his judgment we should commit ourselves wholly to the lord in faith he is more than able to give us strength and victory over our challenges Now the Bible is filled with examples of God's people having their backs up against a deadly peril with deadly danger coming from the front. Maybe the greatest example is in Exodus 14 when the people of Israel in the early days of the Exodus, they were trapped with their backs against the Red Sea and Pharaoh had changed his mind. He wasn't going to let them go and and the, the chariot army of Egypt is coming down upon them from the front. And the people began to complain and cry aloud until Moses stood forth. He said, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. And through Moses' faith, God parted the Red Sea for Israel. And they passed through on dry land. And and when the Egyptians tried to follow, the waves crashed upon them and that wicked army drowned. These are not stories we're merely to file away in our trivia closet. They're to inform our faith and our, 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 our worldview, our, our approach to trials when they come. Do we believe that the God to whom we pray is the very God who parted the Red Sea and saved his people? You see, so much of Second Chronicles was written to persuade the original audience around 475 BC that the God who saved of old still could save them. They were just like us. They needed to take their Bible knowledge and, and realize that it was true and real. And Jehoshaphat was one who experienced God's saving power when that vast enemy host suddenly appeared on their side of the Dead Sea. And Jehoshaphat, of course, did what he could. He summoned his army. We're not saying you don't make use of your resources, even though he knew it would be inadequate. But the first thing he did then was he gathered the people of Judah at the temple of the Lord, and he appealed with them to God in prayer. He stood before God at the temple with the little ones, the wives and their children with them, and he cried to the Lord, O our God, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. 2 Chronicles 20, verse 12. And you know the story because we've already been through it. The next day, he went out with his army. He's going to do his duty. He's not slacking to pray and trust the Lord. But when he gets there, the battle's already over. The Lord has fought it for him. The battle did belong to the Lord. All they had left to do was to clean up the spoils. Do we believe that God answers prayer today the way he answered the prayer of Jehoshaphat? Well, if we do, we will often breathe in prayer with a thankful reliance on the Lord. We will not resort to worldly compromises or sinful stratagems in our attempts to deal with our problems. But if we do not trust the Lord to save now as he has done before, Second Chronicles suggests that half-hearted believers are likely to get an education in the school of trials and hard knocks. It happened to many other kings. King Asa was one who had to learn it that way. He'd actually had, if you remember, he had in chapter 16, he he'd had examples. He'd trusted the Lord, and the Lord had delivered him. Well, then he became proud, and another occasion came, and he was a double-minded king. And he, therefore, did not call upon the Lord. He hired help, and he was defeated by the Lord for it. Well, are our, our trials likewise made necessary by the Lord because of a half-reliant faith that looks to the world first and prays to the Lord last. Remember the words the Lord gave to Asa. It's the message, it's the message really of Second Chronicles. He says, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth that he may give strong support to those whose hearts are blameless towards him. Second Chronicles 16.9 The purpose of so many of our trials and of the troubles that we face is to teach us this, to teach us to rely on the Lord because he has the power to help those who trust him and then to persuade us through the tears of frustrated unbelief that we should no longer neglect the great resource of prayer. Well, the report of Amaziah's victory over the force of Seir reveals him. That's the last portion of our passage. It confirms our assessment of him as a half-hearted man. Even when he did what God wanted him to say, we find he did so with an eye to other things rather than the glory of God and trust in the Lord. And we see this first in the concern he shows over the money he's going to lose which he had used to hire the Israelite warriors. Now, he never should have purchased the services of idol-worshiping soldiers. In the first place, their presence would provoke the Lord. But to his credit, verse 10, when he's told of of the error he's made and when the prophet spells it all out to him, he was willing to do as he was told. Verse 10, Amaziah discharged the army that had come to him from Ephraim to go home again. But his concern was expressed not for the glory of God, not for the honor of the Lord, not for this opportunity for the God to strengthen his own faith. He wasn't thinking about that. Oh, what a great witness this is going to be. Thank you for reminding me. And this is going to really lead people to trust the Lord. He doesn't think about any of those things. He's thinking about the money he fears he's going to lose. Verse 9, And Isaiah said to the man of God, but what shall we do about the hundred talents that I have given to the army of Israel? Richard Pratt gives the assessment, his concern over his monetary investment revealed that Amaziah was more worried about his money than he was about the word of God. Now the Bible makes it clear that obedience to the Lord, that's what he's being asked to do. Look, if you're really smart, you're going to obey the Lord. It's going to make a big difference. But what Amaziah is learning that it often is costly to do so. There's a cost to faith and obedience in God's word. Sometimes the cost is financial. Sometimes it is in other coins. Andrew Stewart writes, there is always a cost to be born when we commit ourselves to serve the Lord. What will my friends and family think? Will I become unpopular when I tell those friends who used to be my partners in sin? And Jesus, you remember, often challenged people uh, who were wanting to follow him to to reckon first on the cost of discipleship before we set out to follow him. In fact, he used a comparison that's rather relevant to Amaziah's choices. Jesus said, Luke 14, 31, what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? That's a very scenario that and as I was in jesus says well we need to reckon similarly about the cost of our discipleship he says well what about a man who wants to build a tower he will first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it luke fourteen twenty-eight. And the point is this, likewise, those who want to be saved through faith in Jesus Christ must be prepared to pay the price for doing so. You say, oh, no, I thought salvation is free by grace alone. It is, and yet it will cost you. It will cost you in a world like ours. God will give it to you for free, but you will nonetheless pay a, crop, a price. And here's that price, Jesus tells us, Luke 14, 26. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. By taking up a cross, the follower of Jesus accepts that life in this world as we previously have known it, perhaps its old agendas we have cherished, perhaps its desires, relationships we have loved, they must often be sacrificed in order to follow Jesus, yes, even to death. Amaziah had failed to place obedience to God ahead of the money he had already spent to buy the Israelite waters that explains his concern that he might forfeit his precious silver on one occasion Jesus disciple Peter expressed concern that he had needed to give up everything in order to follow the Lord Mark ten twenty-eight. Peter said see we have left everything and followed you and Jesus answered that Peter's sacrifice, such as it was, would prove, not even in the end, but even along the way, to have gained him far more than anything he'd given up. Jesus' very important answer, Mark ten twenty-nine to 30, says, "'Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake or for the gospel.'" sometimes that's because we're being persecuted by families other times because the call of the gospel causes us to go away from those things we've loved but jesus says no one who has left those things who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions even in this life the lord compensates those who willingly sacrifice in their faith for the lord jesus If you sacrifice reputation, income, advancement, friendships, even family relationships, you will receive far more in the blessings that come to Christians in the life of faith and the fellowship of the church. Now the prophet who spoke to Amaziah echoed this positive view. Amaziah was concerned about, what about the money I I paid those people with? And he answers, verse 9, the Lord is able to give you much more than this it wouldn't be any difficulty at all for the Lord to compensate the king for the losses incurred by his obedience. In fact, he should anticipate that the Lord would do that. And see, for this reason, only a half-hearted man would worry about money that, 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 that needs to be spent in supporting evangelism or world missions or investing in the, the means of the public worship of the living God. When we put God first, and we zealously apply ourselves to his worship and the spread of the gospel and the building up of the church we may be confident that he is more than willing and able to supply everything that we will need what matters is that we trust him now when jesus answered peter who had mentioned all that he'd given up to follow the lord i mentioned that jesus pointed out to blessings even now that God provides to those who sacrifice in obedience to his call. But Jesus added one more thing. And in the age to come, eternal life. Oh that. And in the age to come, eternal life. What Christ tag will we place on our eternal soul? The forgiveness of sins and our entry into heaven for an eternal age of glory. Now there's a blessing that shall we say tilts the scales rather decisively rather decisively yet the price of following jesus still must be paid it still will hurt in many occasions it will often prove painful and then jesus gave the law he who would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it luke 9 24 for Amaziah, that meant that by obeying the Lord, he would triumph in his battle. Whereas if he clung to his misspent hundred talents, it would cost him defeat. Half heartedly, he calculated rightly. According to God's equation, he decided to let the Israelites go. And the result was victory. So we read, the battle was joined and Amaziah took courage. He let out his people and went to the valley of salt and struck down 10,000 men of Seir, verse 11. And yet here's a second thing about a double-minded man. He did not know then how to respond to the success God had given him, but he immediately descends into acts of cruelty. Verse 12, the men of Judah captured another 10,000 men alive and took them to the top of the rock and threw them down from the top of the rock, and they were all dashed to pieces. Now, now some commentators say, you know, that's just the way it was in the ancient warfare, but that is not the biblical assessment. This horrible violence, it's true, that was common among the pagan nations. But consider the contrast between his conduct and that of King David. And David, the man who's called the man after God's own heart, the man who was wholehearted for the Lord. He also was granted victory over his enemies, but you'll see First Chronicles 19, 19, for instance. He then made peace with the ones he'd conquered and he placed them under his righteous rule. Even when Amaziah was more or less forced into obeying the Lord, his insincere heart left him unable to honor God by commending his mercy. I wonder, are you aware not only how to gain God's blessing, but then how to glorify God through the blessing that you receive? We glorify him not in boasting or in hatred, but in humility and mercy. The way to have a whole heart that truly gains from God's blessing is to study carefully the ways of his word and to commit your heart to him in prayer. Well, not only are half-hearted people unable to profit fully from the blessings they gained from God, but the compromises they made along the way, how often they end up later causing trouble. And so it is in Amaziah's case It comes from the Israelite soldiers whom he'd sent away. He didn't didn't even have to be there at all. He never should have summoned them in the first place, but he did summon them. And then he let them go, and they're offended by that. Verse 10, they became very angry with Judah, returned home in fierce anger. And so while Amaziah is reducing the forces of Seir in Edom to the east, verse 13, the men of the army whom Amaziah sent back, not letting them go with him to the battle, Raided the cities of Judah from Samaria to Beth Horon and struck down 3,000 people in them and took much spoil. Well, here we see the result of the king's foolishness, the the folly committed along the way in hiring these ungodly warriors. They they displayed their avarice. By the way, he shows why the prophet was right. These are not the kind of people you're going to profit from in your company. And they raided the undefended towns of Judah while Amaziah was away now that raid was not the final result from the king's muddled convictions that raid precipitates the further war that's the second half of this chapter in which Judah's king is defeated and captured now notice that in none of these episodes do we read of Amaziah turning in prayer to the Lord for help or for counsel nowhere do we see him consulting God's word God kindly sent of those his word to him but he never seeks the word of God. Yes, he had earlier restraint and he showed some influence in familiarity of scripture. He didn't kill the children of the conspirators. But James 1, 7-8 warns us against a double-minded faith which fails to pray or when it prays, doubts the Lord. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Well, Christians may be very grateful that we rely in salvation on a king who was not half-hearted, not at all, was not double-minded in his resolve to redeem us from our sin or in his commitment to God's word. Think of the things that are said about our Lord Jesus, John 1, 14, that he was full of grace and truth. And he came to earth with a clear message of delivering us from sin, completely dependent upon the Father and the Spirit and observing God's word. Luke's gospel, for instance, tells us that when Jesus realized the time had come for him to be crucified, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus knew what he was about, and he pursued it with the whole of his heart. He resolutely accomplished all of the will of God for our salvation John 13, one says that Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And therefore, he grants us his assurance. He invites us, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If we have committed ourselves in faith to Jesus, well, then we may face any trials, any temptations that the world may send our way. And the prophet's words to the half-hearted king will be proved wholly true of Jesus Christ, that he has power to help. If we will trust him wholeheartedly, we will look back on our lives and on our salvation, rejoicing in the truth of him that was written in Psalm 54. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the teaching of your word and the the lessons in faith versus unbelief, the the folly of half-heartedness. And yet, Father, we are weak. We we need your strength that we would not be double-minded or half-hearted. And so we pray, Father, that by your Spirit, you would take your word to our hearts, that you would persuade us that Jesus is worthy of all of our trust, and that your majestic glory is a worthy cause to which we should give the whole of ourselves. We know you will never fail us, and so we thank you with faith in advance. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.